Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you are a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Dr. Love Lazarus Seacrest, womanist biblical scholar and author of the book Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. In her writing, Love pairs a deep respect for scripture with a disciplined exploration of culture, both from biblical times and today. The book was a demanding read for me, and I had lots of questions, but Love is a wonderful teacher and does a masterful job of explaining her approach to scripture and the way she finds elements in our culture today that rhyme with biblical texts. Love also has a fascinating history, coming to her field of study as a second career scholar. We discuss her journey into academic study, and she graciously helped me to understand the unique approach of womanist theology. And at the very end, I've included a bonus clip in which Love talks about her journey to find a church that aligns with her beliefs. This conversation was truly a delight, and I think you'll enjoy it too. So... Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Love Lazarus Seacrest is Associate Provost for Program Development and Innovation and Professor of Theology at Mount St. Mary's University. Her scholarship is centered on womanist and African-American biblical interpretation and New Testament ethics. She co-chaired the Society of Biblical Literature's African-American Biblical Hermeneutic section from 2012 to 2017, and gives presentations on race, ethnicity, and Christian thought in a variety of academic, church, and business contexts. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Race and Rhyme, but first, I'd love to hear about your history and your path into scholarship. And I understand that you are a second career scholar and that you worked in the aerospace industry for a number of years before going to seminary. So can you tell us about that journey? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I uh, was a um, second career scholar. I did work in the aerospace industry for about um, 10 years. And um, uh, initially during that time, I was a faithful um, uh, Christian, you know, I loved Bible studies, and I uh, I uh, chose I, I found one across town, wherever it was across town. You could, I I would be certain to to show up. Um, my husband got uh offered to move to a different company, and which required a relocation. And during that period of time, I had been in a discernment um, space already about what I wanted um, the next phase of my life. 
uh, to look like. And um, when he got that offer, it gave me some freedom um, to really think radically out of the box. I had already been what I now know to be a, a discernment process about entering ministry full time. Um, I was very conservative in those days, and I really didn't have categories for um, a woman in ministry. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so I often say um, of that time that I was called to seminary uh, mm -hmm. because I really didn't know what would happen uh, out after seminary. And it turns out I was just called to seminary. <laughs> I ended up uh, staying in seminary uh, uh, as a professor for, for many, many years after that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is that's an amazing story. And um, I'm curious to hear more about some of the gifts of your life in the academy and also some of the challenges? It's mm, uh, a great question. Um, I, um, I guess I want to say that I am a lifer when it comes to learning. And so um, there's no better uh, space for someone who loves the life of the mind in the in the way that I do. And so the opportunity to have research and teaching mutually reinforce itself, uh, right? Research um, helps me to bring students some of the best information that a field has to offer my discipline of um, New Testament studies. Um, on the other hand, um, I find research really hard to do without the partnership, the dialogue with my students. Mm -hmm. um, that is the best laboratory for um, thinking, uh, you know, coming up with uh, a different angle, um, helping me work out uh, some of the questions I have being pushed by them um, in certain ways. Uh, and really the, um, the book that my latest book has just been a labor of love of that way. Um, I can, I can count so many stories of how um, students asked for more information about a given topic and race relations. And I would, uh, I would add that to the syllabus, mm -hmm. not because I already knew, but because I was uh, curious to see what they would come up with and, and their research fueled my research and my teaching as well. So that, that is a, a gift beyond measure. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, for someone who uh, loves the Bible, loves writing about it, talking about it, etc., um, it's been hard. There have been some hard spaces um, because, as I just indicated, I came into um, my education in uh, seminary uh, very conservative, not really sure about what um, women should do. If mm -hmm. you know, taking a very conservative reading of uh, texts like First Timothy two. Um, and and so uh, sorting that out, um, uh, finding tools for being able to think about um, the significance of the Bible for my own life and ministry um, was a was a hard thing to navigate. I am so grateful for the mentors and friends that I made along that journey. Um, and then um, over the years, I've uh, I've known myself to be a leader both in industry before I left and also in the academy as well. Um, there are fewer opportunities for women to lead mm -hmm. um, in the uh, in the academy and in the church. And I think the academy is also uh, a place that has not been as um, welcoming uh, to women. Uh, and really, it's it's uh, true across 
um, the United States in many ways, right? It's our society um, and, and, uh, and in other parts of the globe as well. So those have been some of the hardest spaces. Um, yeah. But those are the things that have shaped who I am and the questions that I bring to the text yeah. um, the, and the ways that I um, am trying to sort through them. Well, before we dig into your new book, I did want to ask you to give us a bit more context on your approach to theology, particularly your identification as a womanist New Testament scholar. And I've heard the term womanist before, but I don't feel that I have a very good grasp on it. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be a womanist biblical scholar or theologian. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, my own journey into being able to self-identify as a womanist biblical scholar took many years. Mm. Um, as a um, as a, a student um, of the Bible uh, in my master's and doctoral um, uh, journey, we didn't. I didn't have womanist um, theologians or scholars to mentor me. Um, None of, none of my teachers um, really uh, uh, spent a lot of time um, with that. Um, when I was in my doctoral, um, um, there were no people in my field. I, I was blessed to be at the same school where um, Willie Jennings and Jay Cameron Carter were um, early on. Uh, and they were really important uh, mentors in helping me to engage Black theology and uh, Jennings especially in putting uh, Black women in front of me. But even then, um, as theologians, they were putting um, uh, womanist theologians uh, in, in in front of me. And it it was really like only towards the end that I was a, I was starting um, to uh, incorporate their thought into my um, my research, right? Writing that dissertation. Um, there just weren't enough mentors uh, right. available. To there weren't enough women, if I can be um, so frank, even um, even those, uh, especially in my field. Um, once I graduated, um, I, I've always cared about the issues of race and race relations. Um, and so um, graduating, I became active in the African-American hermeneutics um, uh, groups in the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the scholarly guild for biblical, in biblical interpreters. And, um, and so I became very interested that to the key um, ideas in African-American interpretation is to think about how African-Americans have been interpreting the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, to hear their voices and to seek wisdom from um, their interactions. It's, uh, it's a cultural approach. So it's not, it's integrating a scholarly voice with um, the, the voices from the people themselves who are in conversation with the Bible about their lives be, um, lived before God. Um, that also became the sort of the more I understood about how social location influences one as an interpreter, the more I gravitated um, towards finding the emerging field of black women who are interpreters. Um, so uh, sort of one easy way to think about uh, womanist work is to uh, see um, it as a synthesis of feminist work, more of us are familiar with, um, the way that feminists center the issues of importance to women in whatever discipline they're engaging, right? And so womanists are, are um, 
our, our Black women who are centering the experience of Black women in, in, in my case, the interpretation of the Bible. So it definitely has the uh, emphasis on gender um, and in, in, that, um, in our work. But uh, womanists are also integrating Black theology Right, mm -hmm. the the liberationist um, emphases that um, Black people uh, have been bringing to the study of the Bible for um, decades now, um, and but the and very often Black, the interests of Black women were overlooked by feminists, white feminists, and very often the interests of Black women were overlooked by African American men who were doing scholarship. So. Um, womanist scholarship is intentionally intersectional. So we think about how um, reading the Bible with an emphasis on seeing all kinds of marginalized identities, uh, marginalized communities um, centered to think about um, what is in the Bible um, that can be liberate, uh, can be liberatory for um, all kinds of people who experience uh, some kind of oppression um, or another. So that's how I think about uh, what womanist interpretation is. That is that's very helpful. And and then I I in reading your your book, I hear that I hear that coming through that you're there's so much focus on looking for people who've been oppressed and marginalized on a variety of different levels and, and offering them freedom. That is beautiful. Well, let's start talking about your book entitled Race and Rhyme, Rereading the New Testament. And I really loved reading this book. I am not a biblical scholar. And so it really stretched me. And But I learned so much and I have a lot of questions. So the first thing I want to ask, you write about reading the Bible seriously but not mm. literally. And I think this aligns with the basic training in hermeneutics that I received in it as an university student, where yeah. we were trained to observe the text and interpret the meaning, um, understanding the context around it, and then apply it to our world today. But I think there may be some differences too. And so I'm really interested to understand more. Yeah, thank you for, for that question as well. Um, and it uh, reminds me of uh, the the many um, years I spent um, teaching university students at uh, at Fuller, um, uh, and uh, still count uh, those uh, former students as some of my uh, closest friends. I guess the um, uh, and it and it tracks as well with what I learned about reading the Bible um, at uh, at TEDS um, during my own MDiv, um, and sort of that close attention to the text is something that will forever mark me. Um, and, uh, um, and the, you know, the, just the love that I have. In, in fact, I had a, a colleague, a uh, fellow New Testament professor once um, uh, comment, I don't know how true it was, but it just struck me. He says, so many of us in Bible um, started off as conservative, right? It's because uh, it, it's what drew us to becoming um uh, and uh, scholars and interpreters uh, all along. So that may be the case. The, the big emphasis, I think, when I try to say hey, taking the Bible seriously, but not literally, uh, the biggest, um, I think, question that uh, evangelical readers um, need to sort through is the role of culture in understanding the biblical text um, and, um, and the um, 
and how to how to take culture the the cultures that um, um, that provide the context for um, the original uh, for the for the for the New Testament and the Bi for the Bible New Testament and Old Testament alike. Um, to what degree is the culture of the writings normative for faith and life today? Um, and I think that's where the big issue is. I, I take something that's been uh, central to you know sort of my struggle as I just described it for you was the role of, of women. Um, uh, in my study of the history, um, the historical context of the um, of the writings, I learned that um, thinking about um, what a woman was, sort of, sort of understanding um, the role that uh, the ancients had about women's capacities, um, they were thought of. Um, Many, many cultures across many cultures and many, many years for many, many years, women were thought of as um, sort of not having the same level of maturity, of mature capabilities as adults, maybe sometimes even permanent children, right? Always needing guidance and um, needing oversight um, in order to um, to you know to live lives um, for the uh, benefit of the community uh, and as individuals. So um, so learning that and realizing that contemporary um, people we or especially in the U.S. Uh, in the West maybe uh, broadly we think about women as human beings in very different ways. Um, we acknowledge that they have different physical abilities, right? Um, so they are. They are. They have. Uh, their anatomy is different, and and so that does um, that does impact their uh, um, uh, how their lives unfold. But their intellectual capacities, their moral capacities, um, they aren't um, materially different. So that the woman needs to be guided in all right. things. So, but so understanding that cultural difference, right? The women haven't changed. Their 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 human nature, uh, the the, the uh, who women are, hasn't changed over um, that point. But our understanding about them has changed. And does that become a limiting? For does the culture um, that surrounds the writers of the New Testament does that limit um, what we think today about it? And I I think not. I think that the Bible is a um, it captures God's relationship with people um, who are who are uh, devoted to God, and um, and it gives us it shapes our imagination for what God wants of us in a wholly different um, concept uh, context and time, and I, I think that is the importance and it. it's the root of my um, convictions. The way I teach the Bible, which I've expressed in this book, that it's about understanding the similarities and the differences um, between what was uh, written to shape, how to shape our imaginations about living uh, a, a God-pleasing life and what that looks like in a, um, in a vastly different time. Um, that becomes the most important. So that's that was a long explanation, but it, it gets at the heart of what I'm trying to do with this book is to have a, a disciplined way of examining the similarities and the differences between um, what's in the Bible and what we face, the questions that we face today.
Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad you explained it so clearly. And it, it reminds me, I remember in your book, I underlined this uh, one place where you, you talk about this and then you say that in the context of the early church, that it was shameful yeah. for a woman mm -hmm. to teach because of this sense that they were more childlike, that they weren't educated, but that now it's really the opposite that in our, I mean, you, you, you go ahead and tell us. It's shameful to limit women yeah. to those kinds of roles that assume a certain level of immaturity. And that in fact, um, at first Timothy, uh, that text, the larger ideas of that text are about winning um, winning a good reputation, mm -hmm. the early church winning a good reputation among um, their uh, non-Christian um, uh, contemporaries. It was all about showing that the uh, that the early Christian movement um, was an honorable movement, and so um, and so it would it undermine the testimony, the witness of the church in a public square to have women doing these things that women. Uh, socially, it was socially unacceptable for women to do. And today, to, so so if we if we follow the the intent or the the trajectory of that of that um, that uh, idea in First Timothy, we come to a different uh, performance of the uh, idea that gave rise to that text in the contemporary world in the United States, at least. Yeah, that that is. That's kind of mind blowing, and I really I like the way you explain that. <laughs> so, one one of the other things that um, I read over and over again uh, in your book is that in reading scripture, you want to be sure that any texts that have been used in the past to harm or abuse certain people groups are examined very carefully. And I'm particularly interested in this because a few years ago. I read the Bible through afresh, and my response when I finished it was, wow, I love Jesus, and I love the way God is revealed in Scripture, but the Bible is full of horrible things, and I just did not really know what to do about that. So how, I guess, can you talk about that? How do you approach these places in the Bible where they have been used to abuse or where they've or were there just, you know, awful stories of, of, of violence and something that, you know, practices that we would think today seem dehumanizing, that kind of thing? Yeah, it, I, I had a moment like that um, a long <laughs> time ago. Uh, and I'm, uh, thanks for raising it. It's such a wonderful, I, I think that it's a, it's a situation, uh, experience that many uh, people who uh, read the Bible, it, um, come away with. I remember it was it was when my children were younger and I um, love teaching adults, but I'm not an expert at teaching um, children. And I gave my oldest who was, you know, a really avid reader. Um, I gave her uh, a, um, a graphic. It was, it. I thought it was a picture book, a, sort of a Bible picture book. It turned out it was like a, a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. um, um, where it had been, you know, sort of translated into a cartoon, but the themes were still true to the biblical text. And um, and I remember, you know, what was like a, my eight-year-old, I think at the time, I may be wrong about that, but uh, having her say, mommy, what's rape? <laughs> I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this is a, um, right? This is an adult book. Uh, right. And, uh, and, uh, and it has, 
um, these themes that um, that are not held up uh, for imitation today. Um, and I think that in um, in the uh, the in the circles that I spent most of my life in, um, when it comes to biblical interpretation, that um, that people have different ways of dealing with that. Um, one early thing, a strategy that I learned was to uh, separate out um, the prescriptive text, that means the text that command us to do something, from texts that just describe you know, the, the society, um, the practices, et cetera. Um, and, that, and, and that there were various schemes about how you decided, who gets to decide, and how you decide which text is in which one of those camps. Um, what, uh, what I would say, or what I have said, um, what I believe is that um, every reader of the Bible does something like that. They may not use prescriptive versus descriptive to describe what they're doing, but um, most elevate some, hold these texts up for imitation and these other texts for less emphasis. Um, uh, some uh, progressive might even say, we're not going to read those. We're going to right. pretend as if they're not in the canon. Um, and uh, and then conservatives would react, yeah, you have a canon with it and a canon. That's no good. But I wanna, would want to say to my conservative friends, yeah, actually, you do too. <laughs> like the, the prescriptive versus the descriptive thing is essentially a canon within a canon approach as well. So we all have that um, insight that there's some parts of the Bible that we do not want to repeat. Um, and I, I have uh, often said that one of the reasons I'm not an Old Testament scholar now is I didn't know what to do with the conquest narratives, right? Like those were, you know, genocide. Hello. Um, as an African-American, uh, you know, sensitive to issues of, uh, of race and colonialism and conquest, um, none of that's that right. Um, and I think that what um, the one of the reasons I, gra I gravitated towards being a womanist is that we're very clear about that. We are, we are just wanting to say, we want to we, we wanna see what's liberatory in the Bible. And the things that have people um, that further oppress, um, we, we have to challenge those. Yeah. We have to speak up about that and make sure um, that especially um, for our communities that are harmed in many ways by society in um, explicit and implicit ways, that we speak up, that we make it explicit where there's a text that's doing harm. Um, so uh, so me and my woman sisters are, are, are trying to be clear about that in our scholarship because we really do want to be doing work for the benefit uh, to sort of help our communities um, thrive more, to ask the questions and to, and to speak back um, to the text where necessary uh, because we, we, we are worried about the, the harm that may be done yeah. otherwise. I think, do I hear you correctly that we're maybe required to um, get more comfortable sitting with the questions that if there is a question of why is this, you know, this conquest narrative here, what, what is the lesson to be learned that if we don't have the tools to um, fully understand the context at that time or answer the questions of you know, God is good and loving. And so how does this fit that maybe we just have to sit with it unresolved until we have more information? Is that, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that, um, that uh, one of the things that, um, that scholars for, who do their work for the sake of the church are always trying to do is to integrate, is to take what we, uh, they might say um, in, um, in reading a conquest narrative, well, you know, revelation didn't stop there. Um, we have the fullest expression of who God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That is something I think that um, um, uh, uh, my woman's colleagues would agree with as well, that that is the fullest expression. And so and we want to reread the Bible through that lens. Yeah. Um, I I have like for one of the gifts uh, left over to me from my uh, conservative roots is the fact that I. I do want to keep reading all parts of the Bible, um, but what I say about it is going to change. And that's where I think um, uh, there may be uh, the biggest division between um, the interpretive uh, postures um, that separate out conservatives from, from liberals. But what I'm trying to describe here are that sort of those mis- those misgivings apply across mm-hmm. uh, that kind of a theological divide yeah. and that we're always using a theological, um, let, bringing a theological lens, which goes, which includes a text, but also includes other things beyond the text um, in doing that. I, I'm, I'm just trying to, um, uh, with my woman and sisters, I'm trying to be explicit about that and to say it in ways that are very clear and undeniable um, so that we can avoid uh continuing harms that have been done uh, historically. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Thank you. You are very good at explaining this kind of thing. Thank you. (laughs) I want to ask um, about one particular text. This question is a little bit out of the blue and it's, you don't mention this text very much in your book, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on a story that I've been wrestling with for years and it's Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And it's the, the the story where Martha is the worker and Mary is the learner. Mary sat at Jesus's feet and the interpretation is often Mary did it the right way and everyone should sit at Jesus's feet, which is, I of course, everyone should sit at Jesus's feet. But then I always come back to, okay, well, who's going to make the dinner? And if I <laughs> had been there, why, you know, I would have said, Jesus, why don't you go prepare the dinner with Martha? Isn't so I yeah. just, I continue. I just cannot uh, get out of this, um, this little spiral with this text. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I, um, my thoughts are very similar to your thoughts. I, 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 I do. My thoughts are very similar to your thoughts. And, and it's a, it's a, uh, the Martha figure can do harm. Right. Mm-hmm. By yeah. um, sort of holding up um, very traditional gender roles um, uh, and um, and we pass right over it too quickly bef- uh, without interrogating it. Um, um, that, you know, given that sort of brute strength does not have the same um, we, we don't have the same need for that in modern life. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that now you have both women and men out earning a um, uh, a salary, and somebody's got to you know um, take care of the kids and um, do the grocery uh, shopping and the cooking and the cleaning and um, and rather than just automatically uh, uh, partition off those 
uh, the chores, the common chores that, that a, a, a household needs doing uh, in very traditional ways like the Martha figure. And, you know, we we don't we pass over it with that critique, mm-hmm. I think, is um, is a. Uh, um, is a disservice. Um, on the other hand, I think that um, there is a liberatory element in that text, yeah. in that Mary is a disciple. She's taking the posture of a disciple, and it's opening up a role that had been previously closed off to women, uh, that a woman can learn from a rabbi, mm-hmm. um, right, as a disciple, yeah. um, uh, is liberatory in that culture. Um, and so, um, with that, you know, that understanding, we can then think about what does that say? What, how is our imagination now shaped um, to think about liberation and gender roles and, and um, uh, in uh, contemporary society, which is, has very different sort of um, constraints yeah. uh, around it uh, for. So, yeah, I, uh, I have never written on that. So, um, so these are the remarks of what, you know, how I uh, would engage this kind of a question right, come right. Up in my class. Uh, but I, I think you're, I, I agree. I, and, I, and this has been something that I've been blessed with, um, especially teaching at Fuller and, um, and that I've taken with me in every context where I've been. let's not be afraid to ask questions of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God it will not be harmed by our questions. Our God is bigger than those questions. So let's never stop asking mm. tough questions about the Bible, um, about in, in our, in our, in our, in our world, in our lives, as well as we uh, seek to, um, to live those God-pleasing lives. Yeah, that, that is a good word. You, it, you were, you were talking about imagination and I wanted to ask um, about something from your book you include a reference from Will Gaffney in which she talks about the role of the sanctified imagination. And it reminded me of practices like Lectio Divina and scripture meditation. And um, and I could see that there could be a lot of liberating opportunities with using your imagination in this way. So can you talk about the role of imagination in studying? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, thank you for it. Uh, and I think that uh, imagination has been one of the more, as you called it, it's like a freeing notion um, when you think about uh, bringing it to the Bible. I remember um, this might have been when I was an undergrad in an undergraduate class on Old Testament, and I just kept insisting, "Well, did the sun stop or not?" Because as a <laughs> actual of jo- in Joshua, did the, like did the sun stop or not? If and if it did, I mean, my goodness, that's like a cosmic upheaval like that. It's like we would all we would all agree with that. And, and so maybe it didn't. And so, you know, I would just be like, just be uh, sort of adamant about I need to have the right answer. Um, but when you approach the text, understanding that there are many different genres in it, some of which invite us into a use of, uh, most of which invite us into a use of imagination, whether it's reading story, which is what the most of the Bible is narrative, is story, um, or poetry, which um, operates on the basis of metaphor. Um, And um, some of my um, teachers in in, uh, learning uh, interpretation have been really key in that. Um, And 
some of my senior colleagues when I was a, a, a junior scholar uh, just starting off. Like that the, that the idea of imagination is really important when it comes to um, thinking about the text and living lives um, that are uh, shaped by the biblical um, world. Um, Richard Hayes is someone who uh, talks about his written work. He talks about the conversion of the imagination as sort of a byproduct of what mm. happens. And the the um, uh, the practices that you describe are very common in Catholic circles, right? That's yeah. where many evangelicals borrowed them um, it, uh, for enlivening our um, receptiveness to God um, as we um, as we soak in scripture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love that. I love those images and use those and, and um, I've been shaped and formed by them myself. Um, however, I do want to say that one of the things that uh, Will Gaffney is doing in her work in that phrase, the thing that delighted me so much about that phrase um, uh, that I, I took a moment to talk about it in my book, um, the uh, sanctified imagination is a phrase that I grew up on in hearing from Black folks. Mm. And to see that phrase in this um, wonderful scholarly work um, that she does, a woman's interpretation of, um, of the Old Testament largely, just made my heart leap because what's the, what it refers to, what that phrase refers to, is the habit that African-American preachers have of um, rewriting the biblical story in contemporary terms um, in ways that make the story more accessible, literally rewriting it. And that is one of... Um, the first um, techniques in womanist biblical interpretation introduced by um, one of the first womanist interpreters, Renita Weems, to retell that story in ways that um, get at the liberatory truths um, that are uh, latent in the text, but um, uh, eliminating any troubling um, uh, things that might introduce harm uh, for the, uh, the communities reading it. And so the... Um, uh, Will uses that uh, that phrase to draw an analogy between a practice happening for centuries in the African-American church um, next to a practice, practice, uh, a skill or a method practiced by um, the rabbis mm -hmm. in their um, life with scripture uh, in the uh, and Jewish and Israelite communities. So I love the juxtaposition there. It's true that yeah. what's going on is very similar um, in all those ways. And, uh, and it really just, uh, it made me excited about that, uh, about that phrase that it comes from African-American culture. Um, but she's pointing out how uh, it really exists in another very ancient uh, religious tradition as well. Yeah. Well, I, I'm wondering if, um, I mean, as I was reading this book, there was an important thing happening in the news that I'd love to see if we can make some connections. So um, it was the the brutal police murder of Tyree Nichols, you know, and I'm in the middle of this book and I'm stumbling, you know, as I'm listening to the news, I'm stumbling through my usual prayers of how long, oh Lord, and Lord have mercy. And I just started to wonder if some of these techniques, um, a word you use is associative hermeneutics, if some of that sort of thing can shed some biblical insight on a situation like this and how we can point to God's God's hope for the world and the freedom that he has for us. 
Yeah, thanks for it's such a thoughtful uh, question, Anne. Um, and I, I've had, uh, I, I think that you've put your finger on, um, you sort of created in your question and a point of uh, analogy um, with uh, a text that for me, um, very much expresses that how long the Lord hmm. kind of mentality. Um, other, I bet you, uh, if we had a Hebrew Bible Old Testament scholar here, um, they'd be they'd be able to show you the 15 places in the Psalms or more uh, where that sentiment uh, is expressed. But I was pulled to a place in the New Testament where um, that sentiment and where I have juxtaposed it um, as a, a an a, as a a point of analysis, uh, point of analogy between the human experience, like what is happening before to the parents of Tyree Nichols, yeah. and um, and what is happening with um, the biblical communities addressed in Revelation six, mm. uh, where um, it's this lovely, uh, it's this lovely, it's this lovely text and a really uh, poorly understood. Um, narrative, this apocalyptic narrative in the Bible. I love apocalypse. Um, <laughs> I've been teaching it for years. I, uh, one of my earliest uh, mentors in seminary was writing a commentary on it. And I think I just um, never put it down after that. Um, uh, he really demystified it for me. And many when I try to do the same with my students, but in any case, um, in the narrative, uh, I, I think of Revelation as like a, a political cartoon and that it uses imagery to make a a theopolitical um, claims mm. uh, for the community. And, and he, um, the author is writing to expose, to uncover, that's what apocalypsis means, to reveal, to uncover, to expose sort of the evil inheritance empire mm. and, um, and to address it and to, um, uh, to bring justice um, for the harm that's been done to the communities. God um, sets the record straight in the in the book of Revelation, and um, but in the in the sort of the beginning of this a sort of cycle of judgment, there's a picture of um, of uh, people who've been martyred, um, who've given their lives for the faith, um, who've who've borne witness to who just Jesus is, and receive the negative consequences of taking on empire mm -hmm. in making that kind of a testimony. They're pictured, their souls are pictured under the altar, under the heavenly altar, the altar which um, um, resides in heaven. Um, and uh, sort of they, you know, their bodies have been sacrificed sort of on the, on the altar and their, their souls are underneath and they cry out with a loud voice in chapter six, verse 10, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? And they were each given a white robe, which I think sig uh, signifies uh, sort of the overcoming of the, the, the kind of purity of witness um, that the book is exhorting us to uh, imitate. They're each given a white robe symbolizing that, and they're told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who would soon be killed as they themselves had been killed. So it's it's to say um, we're still in process mm -hmm. on this, but it's the it's the idea that that the people of God themselves are are crying out to God 
um, just as had been done in the past, in Israel in Israel's past, um, when they were oppressed by brutal empires, um, to cry out for justice. Um, God, you've got to make it right. And I see that same moment that the the families of the of uh, African Americans whose lives have been um, taken not not sacrificed but right but taken from yeah. them um begging god for that same uh moment of justice and uh and it gives um comfort um that god hears uh that we are that we are allowed to express that complaint that lament mm-hmm. to god that that's a part of our tradition uh, of who we are i think is a a powerful moment and it helps African-American communities uh, uh, address um, the gap between um, the imaginations that the Bible encourages us to, you know, to, to cultivate of uh, justice and righteousness and integrity and peace um, when it comes into, you know, um, vivid and harsh um, uh, connection with contemporary life yeah. where there's death and oppression and hate. Um, uh, Speaking out to God to voice our complaints, I think, is an important um, move in the in cultivating the spiritual health of these yeah. communities. So, thank you for raising that connection. I think it's an important one. Yeah, uh, thank you for that that image that um, that is so. Um, it just feels very holy, and uh, and the the other thing is, as you were talking, it makes me. It is such a wonderful image to point um, to the meaning that can be happening, that there's another story happening in the spiritual realm that, and that doesn't excuse the violence. It doesn't excuse the injustice that is happening, but it takes it from, um, it takes it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's the story of God redeeming horrible things and making them into something that he can he can do that he can make things beautiful yeah the story's not over yeah god's not done um i i think that was really well said there's a larger context right let's not let's lift up our eyes and see more of um of the larger context of what's going on that god is still in the business of um justice yeah Uh, that i think is an important uh, space of comfort it is very uncomfortable Mm-hmm. If you are on the side of empire, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, it's, so it's, it's, it's not good news to empire, but it is good news um, to the oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and for teaching us about this and for your book. And <laughs> it's, I'm just, it's this um, conversation is so, so thrilling to me. Um, I want to, just get very practical for a minute um, and ask about our audience who are women who are um, in academic and professional contexts. And I'm just wondering if you have any advice about how the typical non-specialist can read scripture with this kind of liberating and healing approach, ways that they can go to their Bible. Yeah, I. Um, that's a great question. I uh, I like that one of the, I guess one of the things that I encourage um, students to do in my classrooms um, is that I actually think we do that anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think that we, um, 
we go into our prayer closets and we pray the psalm and we are not thinking about the original shepherds, right? We are, we are, we have our own lives in mind as we read those lines and it becomes our prayer mm -hmm. to God. And, and, and somehow to the extent to which we resonate with the psalmist's convictions, it helps us to be free in articulating those same emotions, um, sentiment, sentiments before our God. So I actually think that we, that, um, we already do this. Mm -hmm. And I would want to encourage um, women and any readers to keep doing that. Yeah. That sometimes when we um, go to church or we go to seminary, um, we learn about all, we learn about how important it is to read the Bible in its original context. And so we all, um, and there's a tendency to want to come away from the Bible thinking, oh, I've got to be a historian mm -hmm. if I'm going to be able to read it faithfully. Um, but here's what I want to say is the Bible itself bears witness to the people of God doing these reappropriations all the time, wow. <laughs> right? all the time, right? It, it's just like, you know, the, 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 the how long, oh Lord, was originally, you know, at a moment of complaining against, you know, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians or whatever. And, and in the New Testament, there's a new moment. It's very different, um, a very different relationship between the, um, the, where the people are and what they are experiencing than the original. So there's always a reappropriation of scripture that's happening. And, uh, and I, I just want people to feel free in doing it. I, what I hated was trying to to create and introduce an expert to get between the people and their bodies. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things I would say um, uh, when I uh, taught New Testament, which was mostly at Fuller, is that I would tell my students, it is important to learn Greek and Hebrew because following after the, it, it, it reveals details um, that, that, that close attention by virtue of reading in the original languages um, produces greater insights. You'll, 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 you'll understand more of it um, by doing that. So I, I certainly encourage um, learning of, of um, the Bible in the original. But if I ever hear you um, say Greek or Hebrew from the pulpit, I'm going to stand up on <laughs> that sermon and ask you what you're doing because you're creating distance, mm -hmm. putting an expert between mm -hmm. um, the people and the Bible. Uh, and that I, uh, I dislike. So I would encourage women who read um, the Bibles to, uh, to imagine themselves as leaders, um, as teachers, mm -hmm. uh, because that's, that's God is still at work in our society and God is using women in those ways all the time. So let your imagination be converted. Let, mm -hmm. your, um, let your imagination go. Uh, and uh, and try by by trying to find the rhyme um, with the, um, the the similarities and the way it rhymes the ancient world rhymes with today. I think that you'll be in good shape with trying to um, lead a God pleasing life. Hmm. Yes. Ah, I love all of this. So, love. Um, how can readers follow you? and your work. What is, what is next for you? I want to, we have to wrap up sadly, but I want to make sure that people can continue to, to keep tabs on you. 
Yeah, well, thanks for asking. That's a lovely question um, to end. Um, I am a, now a full-time academic administrator, so my scholarly work takes longer um, to do than, uh, than if I was a full-time uh, um, teacher and researcher. Um, but I have just started work on a new book on the book of Revelation, oh, um, wow. right? It's, uh, and, um, and the idea is to, uh, I want to bring the method of the, of, uh, uh, analogical reasoning that is thinking, using analogies, um, for thinking about the text, especially all of the images in the book of Revelation. I want to, I want to help mm -hmm. along with other scholars and demystifying that text for a new generation of readers. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that this would, will not take the 10 years that race and rhymes. It'll be considerably shorter. Um, uh, but I'm hoping to think through like the politics, um, of, uh, to find moments analogous in that, that ancient text about the political situation, because it really wasn't a, a divide. They didn't they didn't divide up society or their thinking about society into this is political versus this is religious. It was all intermeshed. Mm -hmm. Like God was over it all and in it all. And I wanna I wanna think theologically about our contemporary politics with uh, the Book of Revelation in mind. In our interview, Love reiterates her strong belief that we must not be afraid to ask questions of the biblical text. God is big enough to handle any question. This truth gives me such courage and renews my own desire to dig into scripture, and I hope you feel the same way. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Love's book. You can find the link in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, You'll hear a little bonus from our interview in which Love talks about her process of finding a church that aligns with her theology. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in to this excerpt from my interview with Love Seacrest. I want to ask, um, I'm curious to learn, what was your journey like with your church at this time? I mean, you moved, so you, I assume you went to a different church, but was that a complicated thing to find a church home that affirmed your gifts and your direction? Yeah, it was really hard. Um, thanks for asking that. Uh, in the earliest days, I stayed with the, um, oh, I guess I should, before I, I start talking about that, I should say that I am a very, very ecumenical um, Christian and uh, and haven't had tight, uh, deep roots in any one single um, tradition. I now self-identify as an African Methodist Episcopal um, layperson, uh, AME layperson, uh, but it took a long time for me to do that. I um, I spent a long time sort of broadly Wesleyan um, before anchoring in the AME church. 
Um, but as I, I also said that I started off my earliest uh, life just going to every Bible study, it didn't matter what church it was in, um, across town. So, um, so in any event, the, uh, um, at, the, at the time that I started seminary, I was in a pretty conservative church. And I stayed there through um, the whole time I was in seminary. And it wasn't until we moved um, uh, to start graduate school that I had the opportunity um, to think again about the kind of uh, church family that would be uh, most helpful. But that, that was, I mean, that was difficult. Um, and, uh, and it became, and then once I, I, um, I uh, that, that sort of growth during my MDiv, when I was moving away from using the tools that I had learned at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School um, to, uh, to conclude that um, I, um, I did feel freedom, that there is freedom for women to minister um, and to teach and to lead um, in the church. And, uh, and, and finding my way around not wanting to uh, sort of create a big split or, right. um, I learned a lot. Um, and I think there's uh, sort of in my own spiritual growth, um, the, the learning about, um, uh, um, about being in community and the gifts I got from that community were uh, for a season more important than any sort of self-expression I needed to have. Um, so it was a it, it was a journey, and but eventually I concluded that um, if I'm going to if I'm called to teach pastors, then I needed to be um, in a church that um, would uh, would affirm that as well. 